Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Schmidt. He is a postdoctoral research fellow and project development scientist at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He's a former State Department energy security advisor, also with Duke University Center for International and Global Studies Rethinking Diplomacy Program. And finally, this is a very long CV, but he's an accomplished guy, so I have to go through it. Senior fellow in the Democratic Resilience Program at the Center for European Policy Analysis uh, Think Tank in Washington, D.C., otherwise known as SIPA. Ben, uh, it's great to have you on. And I, I wanted to talk to you for a long time because you're one of these people who, whenever there is the slightest bit of information about the Nord Stream 2 program, I get these Twitter direct messages from you, usually with like little fire alarm emojis or exclamation points. I mean, you, you are the, the wonkiest wonk that ever did wonk about this issue, but I love it. And, and it's an important issue that I fear most Americans have no real knowledge of. Surely listeners to my program have at least a nodding acquaintance with the subject because it, it involves U.S.-Russian uh, relations and also U.S.-European policy. But let me just sort of turn it over to you to describe first, what is Nord Stream 2? Why is this such a controversial program? How has it thrown a spanner in the works with respect to U.S.-Russian relations and also now U.S.-German relations, which seem to be a big foreign policy priority for the uh, new Biden administration. Give us a lay of the land here. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks for having me on the pod. I think I'll start by saying I, I feel like I'm in a Dr. Seuss book saying I'm the wonkiest wonk that ever did wonk. That's, uh, no, that's You don't want to be in a Dr. Seuss book these days, my friend. So no, I would rephrase. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, um, no, it's great to be on. Uh, thanks. A uh, longtime listener, first time guest. So it's uh, really exciting. But yeah, I, I've been focused on the the um, Nord Stream 2 issue for six straight years now. And the reason for that, just first of all, is a bit of background. I, I joined the State Department as a science policy fellow in 2015, August of 2015, and was given this you know important but small portfolio to start with of Nordic-Baltic issues. And uh, that was kind of as a first-time diplomat, the, the way to ease my uh, experience level into working at the State Department. Of course, two weeks after I started, literally... Nord Stream 2 is announced. And since then, it has become the largest geopolitical debated energy project on the planet. I think it's pretty safe to say at this point, perhaps the most controversial pipeline that exists today. So first of all, for folks that might not be initiated, what is Nord Stream 2? Well, just the basic facts and figures of it is Nord Stream 2 is a second of what would be the largest, longest subsea gas pipeline on the planet, reaching from near St. Petersburg in Russia to the Lubmin gas hub in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern in Germany. Uh, it would be, have a capacity of 55 billion cubic meters of gas per year and join an already completed since 2013 Nord Stream 1 pipeline that also has a 55 BCMA capacity. That's uh, in the energy world, BCMA is billion cubic meters per year. So we'll be using that term a lot. So that's just a volumetric volume measurement of how much these uh, pipelines can actually convey in terms of natural gas. So you might say right away, Michael, hey, there's a Nord Stream 1, so why do we care? What's the big deal with Nord Stream 2? Well, there's a big difference in these two pipelines. First of all, we're in a different state in the transatlantic relationship and transatlantic security vis-a-vis -vis Russia than we were when that came online. Arguably, it was still a controversial pipeline at the time, but it was actually aimed at bringing new gas to Europe to some extent, even though it did already start the Kremlin's stated goal of reducing some volumes through the Ukrainian route. 
What Nord Stream 2 uh, would do and why it's so controversial is remember what was happening back in August 2015. We were right in the shadow of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and aggression in eastern Ukraine. And that's a real big concern because the main stated objective at the time of the Kremlin of building Nord Stream 2 was to actually cut off gas transit that it traditionally would bring, Russia in this case, to bring its gas across Ukraine through the Ukrainian gas transmission system to the Baumgarten gas hub owned by OMV, the Austrian partially state-owned company in Austria, you know, traditionally for for many decades. So to end that, that's a real big national security concern for Ukraine. The concern, you know, at first was, well, Ukraine is going to lose all these transit revenues and it would basically hit several percent of Ukraine's GDP overnight at a time when the Kremlin is trying to destabilize uh, the country through hybrid war, through actual conventional kinetic war. An economic uh, arrow in their quiver, so to speak, would be a major win in terms of, from Russia's perspective, to basically continue to destabilize Ukraine from its Euro-Atlantic aspirations. So there's an economic side, but there's also a concern on the national security side. There is a dependence right now on that pipeline infrastructure. The Russians actually still need Ukraine to not be fully destabilized to get that gas across the country and get its own volumes to European markets, including to Germany. And without this, you know, you look at where does the actual physical infrastructure lie? There's actually some infrastructure in the Ukrainian pipeline network that the Russians rely on that is very physically close. It's in certain certain areas circumscribing the line of contact in Donbass. So the idea is not that, you know, the tanks roll tomorrow if Nord Stream 2 turns on and the gas stops flowing, but rather that it's one less strategic deterrent for the Kremlin in its ongoing aggression towards Ukraine. So that's kind of the big macro picture for Ukraine at a much broader scale. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of end my opener with this to say that this is running directly counter to the European Union's own stated energy security goals. They laid out the European Energy Union strategy in 2015, which was specifically aimed at reducing dependence on Russian natural gas resources through a diversification of uh, of sources, routes, and fuel types. And this does exactly the opposite. So by consolidating up to 70% of Russian gas transit to Europe through a single vulnerable corridor in the in the Baltic Sea, you really have this energy security uh, element that is concerned. But even broader is the strategic security and strategic corruption element. And, and I hope that we can talk about this in more depth as we go along in the program. But Remember, Nord Stream 1 was advocated in the mid-2000s by then-German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, who lost an election, and then just after leaving office, became managing uh, board of directors member for Nord Stream 2, and then has since gone on to the Gazprom board and Rosneft board, etc. It's the CEO of Nord Stream 2 right now is, is Matthias Varnig, who is a uh, former Stasi officer, who then went on in the post-Cold War era to become one of Putin's most closest cronies in St. Petersburg and then onward till today. And he was named most recently in Navalny's own anti-corruption video, Putin's palace video, as being a key member of Putin's orbit of corruption. So this idea of elite capture and strategic corruption is a big concern. And then a much broader level, you say, you know, why are we focused so much on this one pipeline? This is really indicative of all of the broader national security concerns that we have in the transatlantic community today. Because if you look at a lot of headlines, these are all actually really related. When we look at Chinese investment in Europe, Chinese investment in the United States, Russian investment in Europe in particular, through uh, the way that these authoritarian nations project malign influence and project influence projection in, in general through 
A, critical infrastructure investments, B, quote unquote, economic deals, financial deals, et cetera, loans. You know, China is very famous for its debt trap diplomacy in South America and Africa, but it's also doing very similar things through its 17 plus one initiative in Central and Eastern Europe. And then finally, through emerging technologies, when we look at the debate over 5G and Huawei and things like this and in other emerging technologies, you know, we're looking at authoritarian influence projection because all of the nations that are in the transatlantic community have said the right things on these issues. But when it comes to the deals that they have sometimes with Russia or with China, then all of a sudden that's a completely separate story that should be cordoned off. And so I think that at a much broader level, the Biden administration has a real opportunity to mix the hard science and technology analysis by getting practitioners of science and technology in the room to look at these issues and, and really look at the national security concerns that are associated with these projects, uh, whether they be hydrocarbons, whether they be telecommunications, transportation, et cetera, and then vet them on the merits of their technical capabilities to project a national security threat and then come up with a transatlantic response to this. We need to be on the same page whether it comes to coming up with you know, what I call a transatlantic FARA consensus, Foreign Agents Registration Act, so that former senior officials from the West can't just go serve on the boards of major uh, authoritarian nation state-owned enterprises, because that really presents, even if legal, a major conflict of interest and kind of a public corruption sort of perception. And then also, you know, what are the actual national security concerns? If there aren't any, then we should you know, look at them as actual economic deals. for, But for the most part, and I tweak this hashtag a lot, these are not just a commercial deal. And, and that comes back to when this longstanding line by uh, project promoters of Nord Stream 2 in Germany saying that, you know, especially at the start, there, there weren't any real geopolitical concerns. This is, quote, just a commercial deal. And even though Chancellor Merkel has since come out and say that, you know, there are geopolitical elements to this, you'll still see, especially members of the SPD saying that this is just a commercial deal. And on all of these fronts that I just mentioned, they're rarely just commercial deals. I had Natalie Vogel, who's a, a German uh, Russia watcher from the um, European Values think tank in Prague on the program a few weeks ago. I check in with her just to see how dire and forbidding the German political establishment is. The, the Kremlin does things to antagonize or provoke Germany all of the time, whether it's murdering a Chechen dissident turned Georgian spy in central Berlin in, in broad daylight using FSB agents and their assorted gangster cronies, whether it's essentially forcing Germany to take custody of the leader of the Russian opposition, Alexei Navalny, after he was poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent, which German doctors determined was indeed Novichok. Therefore, you know, this was a Russian state act of terrorism against one of its own citizens to the, you know, remember the Liza or Lisa case? Yeah, of course. German media where, it, you know, there was this fake news story of this uh, German-Russian citizen who was allegedly raped or gang raped by a, a roving gang of North African migrants. The whole thing was just a complete active measure by Russian state press. Time and time again, Angela Merkel and the entire German political class are shown that <laughs> Russia really isn't their friend. And it's going to act as aggressively and as antagonistically toward Berlin as it does toward Washington or London, et cetera. And yet time and time again, it seems that Germany sort of rolls over. I mean, I just did a, a big investigation of Yevgeny Prigozhin's new influence operation targeting the Baltic Sea region, which of course not just includes Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, but also Poland and Germany. You know, it's amazing. Alexander Malkevich, 
who is a U.S. sanctioned agent or operative of Mr. Prigozhin, one of the leading sort of guys in the so-called St. Petersburg back office, leading this disinformation election interference campaigns around the world. He posts up in Berlin all the time. Uh, Vladimir Yakunin, a former KGB officer, former vice president of Russian railways, and perhaps most important of all, you know, one of Putin's uh, longtime confederates from his St. Petersburg days, operates freely, runs a think tank in Germany. What in your mind, I mean, no, no doubt you had to liaise with our German counterparts uh, while you were at state. What accounts for this, I mean, dare I say spinelessness or this kind of acquiescence to, as you point out, not just a gas pipeline, but a corruption conduit, a sort of arm or mechanism for Russian security and defense policy. I mean, you know, energy is, this has become a cliche and I'm partly responsible for it, has become weaponized and has been weaponized by the Kremlin going back now, what, 15 years. Why are the Germans doing this? Especially at a time when it, when they've got a US president in office who perhaps his signal foreign policy ambition is to revivify the transatlantic relationship, which means doing business with Berlin. Yeah, I think that's a great question and, and something I always ask myself. So there's kind of a number of elements at play here. Number one, I think, first and foremost, is a historical element of uh, the idea of Willy Brandt and Ostpolitik runs very strong, especially in the SPD party in Germany, in which this idea that you would have Wandel durch Handel or change through trade. And the way that I see it, you have a lot of Handel going on in, in the past decade, but very little Wandel, meaning a lot of trade, but not much change. And this idea that, you know, Russia is there, I hear this a lot, Russia is there, we need to, you know, both be tough with it on these national security threats, but uh, the best way we can engage uh, on a positive program with the, the Kremlin is through these massive trade deals, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, for example, infrastructure development. Well, that's a real concern when you look at, at the same time that that's happening, you have former, in particular, I hate to say it, German and Austrian officials that continuously toe the Kremlin line while in office, step out of office, and then seemingly get rewarded for those positions by at least having a perception of, of being rewarded through posts on Russian state-owned enterprise. Uh, Just yesterday, it was announced the former foreign minister of Austria at whose wedding Vladimir Putin danced. Uh, is now on the board of Rosneft. That's right. Karen Kneisel. She was yeah. she was nominated to the board of uh, Russian state-owned oil company Rosneft to join Gerhard Schroeder and Matthias Vanich on this exact same board. So it's a, a friend of mine uh, once called this uh, Mount Slushmore. <laughs> you know, Schroeder and all of these cronies that really just are all in this same, uh, what a former Estonian president Tumas Ilves has said, is a Schroederization or this Schroederizatia effect where, where you have these former officials doing this, this sort of stuff. And it's not just, you know, those three. I mean, of course, Barnig is in a completely different category, not being a former head of state or senior official. But, you know, just a few years ago, you mentioned Russian railways. The Austrian chancellor, Christian Kern, uh, stepped out of office after having had uh, said a number of times in office very strongly that uh, Austria was supporting Nord Stream 2, stepped out and became a board member of Russian Railways. Hans Dorg Schelling, the former Austrian economy minister, stepped out of office after having uh, pushed for Nord Stream 2 in office and was rewarded with a, uh, a senior position on the, the Gazprom board. Again, 
none of this necessarily is alleging anything illegal going on. In fact, it's it's not. And that's, I think, the big concern. It's, it's this perception of corruption that's going on. And that's why I think that we really need to have a rethink in you know, from both the United States and our European partners and allies on how do we push back on this? Because if we don't get beyond this sort of, this sort of thing and a project like Nord Stream 2 is completed, the lessons learned, I fear, are that Yes, you know, there may be protestations from the majority of the transatlantic community. Again, it's not just uh, Poland and Ukraine, as is often said, as opposed to Nord Stream 2. It's most of the Nordic countries, almost every country in Central and Eastern Europe. Canada has uh, stepped, called out uh, the project, as has the UK, Denmark, France at times uh, has called it out, and the United States on a, on a strongly bipartisan basis the entire time it's been in development for the past six years. So it really, you know, really speaks to you know, what is the legacy of this if this project is completed? Not only its immediate threat to Ukraine's national security and the EU's general national security interests, but also what do we what do we learn in terms of the, the future? Um, if these sort of projects are successful, then the Kremlin's just going to, there'll be a Nord Stream 3, a Nord Stream 4, because why not, you know, from their perspective? And now, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of, of the pipeline has been built, right? I mean, it's like upwards of 90% of the infrastructure has been laid already. So I think the argument coming from the sort of pro Nord Stream folks is, well, the time to oppose this thing is long past. I mean, it's, it's you've got facts on the ground, as it were. I've heard from sort of incoming Biden administration officials, well, you know, we don't necessarily want to go to war with Germany over this. And, and you know, perhaps sanctions isn't the best uh, tool in our kit. So there's other talk of trying to mitigate the impact through, I guess you would give me the term of art for this, but intermediary or intermediate pipelines in Europe that are controlled by European concerns rather than Russia. Walk us through some of the compromises on the table, short of you know, a kind of total sanctions regime to stop anybody from even thinking about doing business with this, uh, you know, this project. Well, that's a that's a great point, Michael. And I think that what folks need to remember is the first tool that the United States has used on its engagement with Nord Stream 2. And I think really a, a great point is why is this not, you know, why did the U.S. wait till it was 90% complete or whatever to use sanctions, the, the sanctions tool on Nord Stream 2? And it's because diplomacy is our first line of, of action. Both the Obama administration that I served in and then and onwards, every consecutive administration has used diplomacy as its first tool. And Congress was the one that ultimately came out at the last minute, literally the, uh, quite literally the 11th hour with mandatory sanctions in 2019, December 2019, to stop the project. And the reason for that was Russia watchers in terms of uh, Russian energy watchers and, and European energy security watchers over the last decade has have kind of had two main tenets of how they look at how the Kremlin uses energy in Europe. First, that it's the, the general aphorism of Russia uses gas for influence and uh, in oil for revenue. I think that's largely true and still largely true. But it also was foreseen for many years that 2020, you know, January 1st, 2020, would have a massive gas crisis in Europe, very similar to the 2009 gas crisis between Russia and Ukraine, because of the end of that long-term gas contract between NAFTA gas of Ukraine and, and Gazprom of Russia. And that didn't happen. And the reason that didn't happen was there were trilateral discussions going on, which were very heavily reported in the media between the EU, Ukraine, and Russia on a continued gas transit contract. But the Russians were playing hardball. They said, well, look, we're going to have this diversionary pipeline done pretty soon. Why should we enter into some sort of long-term negotiation? And so these were stalled. And, and just with a week left in that contract on December 20th of 2019, these mandatory sanctions were passed just on a kind of a pinprick approach 
which was targeting basically a single vessel uh, that was a single Western vessel that was doing this work, all seas uh, pioneering spirit vessel. And that vessel in real time, those sanctions were passed on a, a Friday night. And by Saturday midday, you could watch on marine traffic, this open source marine monitoring tool, this vessel sail away. That doesn't happen in energy security circles very often that you have a, a real time impact of some sort of piece of legislation, uh, but it did. And as a result, that next week with one week to go, Russia got a deal done with Ukraine and there wasn't a gas crisis in Europe. So I think it has to be pointed out that sanctions actually were used along with diplomacy to impact and have a positive national security impact for both Ukraine and for Europe writ large. That's the first part. And then the second part you ask about is, you know, this these talks of a deal. I'd love to, to cover that with you today and happy to have a discussion on it. But what's being raised in the, the German press, especially right now, are a lot of test balloons to see, you know, what sort of things might be possible and what could the Biden administration look at. And there's really two different areas of this. Number one is this idea that you would have just a continued gas transit contract. You call for the Russians to just extend the existing extended gas transit contract. But again, the reason that was extended was uh, because of the U.S. sanctions. And we don't have to imagine what the Kremlin will do if Nord Stream 2 is completed, because it had already used another pipeline through the Black Sea, Perk Stream, which only has a capacity of 15, uh, roughly, BCMA. It did not get touched by sanctions because it was completed before they came into force. And uh, Russia was able to largely eliminate the traditional Russia, Ukraine, Romania, Trans-Balkan route to the tune of, on January 1st, the capacity dropped about by 90%. And over the course of last year, dropped by 70% since the start of 2020. So it has used its infrastructure, diversionary infrastructure to cut off Ukraine already. And the concerning thing, if you look at the volume change, is Nord Stream 2 being so much more massive would allow it to get this done and, and really cut off Ukraine. The other part of these proposals are this idea of a shutoff mechanism. In the case of Russian gas cutoff of Ukraine, you know, you would have this scenario where supposedly Nord Stream 2 comes online, there'd be gas deliveries to Europe via Ukraine, and all of a sudden, Russia decides to cut off those and Gazprom terminates these contracts and stops this. Are we to believe that Germany or the EU would intentionally stop Nord Stream 2's operation in that, that scenario and de facto initiate a gas crisis across Europe by shutting off its remaining principal supply of Russian gas to the continent? Not a chance. And theoretical arrogance aren't even needed to show this plan to be a non-starter. If you look back to the uh, Ukraine Freedom Support Act of 2014, this included a clause that called for sanctions against Gazprom should it be determined that it had withheld significant gas volumes destined to flow to Ukraine. But of course, we saw this since 2014 a number of times. Putin is hardly deterred by these sort of threats, cutting off shipments whenever he feels like, including in 2015 and 2018. So I think that what we need to do is, is the following. My advice for the Biden administration, who I really am rooting for, I supported Joe Biden very publicly during the, the election time, because I believe he really understands these issues. He understands the national security threat posed by things like Nord Stream 2, but also sticking up for both European security, standing up to Russian aggression and supporting Ukraine. So I still have a, a big hope that his points that he has said many times that Russia's Nord Stream 2 is a bad deal for Europe, which he first said in 2016, well, vice president will continue to make good on this to basically stop the project. But I think that because of the state things are at, you basically need to start by stopping the project. There was a report from the Harvard Kennedy School and the German Council on Foreign Relations just a few months ago that called for the Nord Stream 2 project and the sanctions on it to be suspended. This is, I think, a worthy goal. If you stop Nord Stream 2, what's the need for sanctions? Right. But 
the thing is to have these sort of dialogues after, you know, you're already floating these deals that I, I really don't think are credible in terms of gas contracts and shutoff mechanisms and things like this. I think you first need to stop the, the active construction of the project. And hopefully it can be done in one of three ways. First of all, the Biden administration, rightfully so, has a lot of political capital that it, it has that the Trump administration could never dream of on this, this issue because it is doing the, the right thing from reversing Trump's call to withdraw U.S. troops from Germany to its return to the Paris Climate Accords to an end to threats of a trade war. There's widespread efforts to restore the U.S.-German relationship to good health. But Nord Stream 2 isn't only about the U.S.-German relationship. It's about the U.S.-Europe relationship and its collective struggle to grapple with steady progression of malign actions by Putin's government. And what I want to say on this front is we need to stop this today as soon as possible so that we can have a real discussion and, and maintain leverage on the Kremlin for this, this project. So either Germany needs to have, uh, as uh, Norbert Röttgen, the uh, CDU foreign policy chief in Germany has called for a number of times, a immediate moratorium to basically stop pro the progression of the pipeline's construction as soon as possible. The EU could sanction the project and stop it as well, uh, although that would take a lot longer. And I think that we don't, we're kind of running out of time for that if these Russian flag vessels keep working on the project, albeit slowly. But I think in the end, deploying, uh, at least to some extent, especially on these Russian flag and Russian owned vessels in the Baltic Sea that are currently slowly moving the project forward at this point, U.S. mandatory sanctions likely are the right tool for the short term in order to get that discussion and have a real discussion where it's it's not just the U.S. and Germany talking about this, because I think rightfully so, Ukraine, Central and Eastern European EU states, et cetera, would all say that this is about us without us. And that is something that we really can't have, because it's not only about the U.S.-German relationship. You have to consider the U.S. relationship with all of these Central and Eastern European countries that all oppose this and want this project stopped. Right. So I basically you know, lay out three areas that you can do if, if you were ever to have a deal in the future for Nord Stream 2 to go forward. Once the project is stopped, okay, then Washington and Brussels should use the leverage of Nord Stream 2's incompletion to call for verifiable behavioral changes from the Russian Federation. This is not being asked right now very often in public at all vis-a-vis -vis Nord Stream 2. There's a lot of kind of regulatory situations, you know, could we set up or invest in other infrastructure, things like this. The problem is not Germany, the problem is Russia. So these actions need to change. And to do this, I think you need to do this in one of three ways. Number one, you know, in Ukraine, you need to have real and verifiable action by the Kremlin to ease and cease its aggression in eastern Ukraine and, and leave Crimea. This would enable Ukraine to have a more stable security situation on the ground. So if Nord Stream 2 is ever completed down the road, five, six, ten years from now, the Kremlin does not, you know, does not have that sort of active aggression element going on that it can't impact Ukraine security as much should it cut off pipeline flows to Ukraine. Transatlantic community, I think we need a dialogue immediately. I think the Biden administration, you know, it just sanctioned Kolomoisky in Ukraine, for example. It's said that it wants to put kleptocracy globally on notice, and I think that's a great idea. And I think that's why it has the credibility and it's gaining the credibility that it has on this issue to open and forge a new set of transatlantic political norms aimed at blunting the ability of former Western officials to work for Kremlin-controlled state-owned enterprises. It would be a step to reduce the concerns over strategic corruption and elite capture common to the policy debates that have surrounded all of these Russian state-backed projects, but also Chinese projects. And then finally, because you're chief of investigation at the Free Russia Foundation, we can't forget Russian civil society as well. This is not an anti-Russia policy either. This is concern for the Russian people. 
And this is concern for basically opposition to Putin's policies. So we need to remember Russian civil society. And so I think in any sort of uh, discussions, it needs to include, of course, the immediate release of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and a reversal of civil society crackdowns that have continued to degrade the freedoms of the Russian people themselves. That's kind of what I what I think. There. Yeah. To my mind, there, there's always been a lack of an integrated Russia policy in U.S. thinking. I mean, Russia, whether it's the invasion and annexation of Crimea and then the, the war started in Donbass or the attempted murder of defectors and dissidents with essentially weapons of mass destruction on European or Russian soil. I mean, all of these things kind of result in pinprick retaliations or attempts to, you know, at least symbolically bang a drum and say, you know, down with this sort of thing. We, we don't accept it. I mean, even I was a little disappointed, frankly, to see the suite of sanctions passed on the Navalny poisoning because Alexander Bortnikov is not going to give a shit right, that right. he's sanctioned by the United States. If anything, I mean, as director of FSB, that's a badge of honor. I mean, he'll get a promotion or, you know, a pay increase for that. What I was looking for was something with a little more meat on the bone. And, you know, fortunately, I mean, you talk about these measures not being anti-Russian, but being anti-kleptocratic and anti-Kremlin and anti-Putin. I mean, Navalny's own foundation put out a list of people who ought to be sanctioned by the United States because they're crooks and thieves and they are complicit in the, you know, essentially the state capture of all form of politics the economy, everything that has transpired under this system for the last almost 20 years. I mean, including oligarchs who own sports clubs in Europe or newspapers and certainly own tons of property all over the world. Uh, and yet we always seem reluctant to want to go that extra mile. Roman Abramovich is not sanctioned by the United States. Uh, Alisher Usmanov is not sanctioned by the United States. Having done these investigations for a long, long time, having kind of tried to figure out what is motivating, not belligerence writ large. I mean, I, I expect the Russian government to always be at some form of state of war with the West, even when they say that there's peace or detente or, you know, normalcy. It, it just doesn't exist. However, what motivates, say, a Putin to try to throw a U.S. election in 2016? Well, according to Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogin, who I've had on the program before, he was really exercised by the Panama Papers, which showed that his friend and confidant, uh, Sergei Roldugin, this uh, concert cellist, was in fact a bag man for billions of dollars of Putin's ill-gotten stolen wealth. Right. You hit a nerve with these guys when you go after them, their money, not the institutions, not the energy sector per se, but when you go after their personal fortunes, that really pisses them off. So when you talk about changing the behavior of the Russian government, I don't see, and, and maybe you disagree, uh, we, I'd love to have this discussion, I don't see even the cancellation of Nord Stream 2, as let us say, if Putin were, to, were sitting in the Kremlin today, you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to Novichuk X, Y, and Z tomorrow, he ain't going to stop doing it because of Nord Stream 2. I think he's going to stop doing it if things like that $1.5 billion dotch on the Black Sea couldn't be built or finished because the construction companies from Italy and France and Germany were sanctioned for doing it, right? It's a combination of as you pointed out, ridding ourselves and our own seemingly transparent market economies of corruption, and while also blocking the exportation or, or the, the kind of um, the trafficking of it from Moscow. Now, look, you're the expert on this, and you've forgotten more about Nord Stream 2 than most people will remember. But I just worry that you know even that, even stopping the, the turning on of this pipeline system is not going to be enough. There has to be more. And, you know, by the way, I've talked to people who are now in government who 
um, thought that sanctions under the Obama administration for the war in Ukraine were a bit too kittenish themselves. Uh, why didn't we do sectoral sanctions? Well, the logic, of course, was we don't want to hurt the ordinary Russian citizen. But when you've created a system in which it is almost impossible to go after the elites or the, the sort of nomenclatura of Putinism without also hurting the ordinary Russian citizen, what do you do? What is the workaround solution? You know, the big banks, the big commercial banks that we chose not to go after wholeheartedly with sanctions because, you know, Babushka's in Novosibirsk put their pension check in there. Who else is putting money in those banks? We know who, right? We know who. That's the way the system works. I mean, the Iranians are good at this. I'm sure the Chinese are past masters at this. And the Russians are world-class at moving money around in, in all sorts of creative and ingenious ways to evade our sanctions. I mean, I, I will tell you, you talk about Crimea and, and sort of a policy of getting the Russians out. I mean, I, I had queried you on a project I was working on about, okay, like how militarized is Crimea these days? And even I was kind of bowled over at, you know, the deployment of troops. It's up from, it was, I think, 12,500 Russian troops before the occupation. Now it's 32,500 by 2025, according to the Ukrainian Defense Ministry, it's going to be 43,000. To say nothing of submarines, MiG fighter jets, Sukhois, the, obviously the Black Sea Fleet, which is stationed there, and the deployment of caliber cruise missiles. How are you going to get these guys out of there? They're dug in, you know? What calculation can we come up with that says to Putin, okay, you know, remember that little adventure you had in 2014? Time to call it quits. I think those are all great points. I don't disagree with you at all on any of it. I think that going after Russian oligarchs, banks, et cetera, all need to be on the table as we go forward. Uh, just, I, I think last week was the seventh anniversary of the illegal annexation of Crimea by Russian forces. Yeah. How long are we going to be discussing this, hoping that next year will be any different if there's no actions taken? I think the Biden administration would be well advised and they, they have great minds thinking of, you know, that can think about this, of what sort of steps can be taken both with, with sanctions and with other restrictive means to make progress on these fronts. I think that the, the status quo obviously hasn't been effective at, at doing that. And I think that's why projects like Nord Stream 2 need to be stopped to at least symbolically say that business as usual really can't go forward because it's also a chilling effect on future projects that the Kremlin would want to do like this. You know, when you look at how Rosatom has its outreach of influence and diplomacy in Central and Eastern Europe, that's, a, that's the same sort of trend across most of Russia's state-owned enterprises in the West, but also inside the the Russian Federation, the advancement of these projects allows for Putin to direct business to his cronies, right? Yeah. So the Rotenberg brothers and Timchenko, both of which are SDNs, you know, U.S. Treasury Department, OFAC, SDN sanctioned individuals, are some of the prime contractors for all of the upstream work inside the Russian Federation and the pipeline networks to get gas from the Yamal Peninsula down to where Nord Stream would come online. And that can't be forgotten as, as well. It's, it's as you said, you know, if you sanctioned or basically sanctioned oligarchs that would make it impossible for that dacha to have, you know, uh, an 11th story on its already 10, 10 palatial stories added on in Sochi, you know, that's a big, a big hit, but also like allowing these to go forward allows for status quo of, you know, domestic kleptocracy to continue. And, you know, what is the commercial basis of this project? It really is not. It's a strategic project from the point of view of harming the national security of Ukraine for the Kremlin. 
right? So, you know, if you look at the 2018 Sparebank report that talked extensively on this topic and got its author fired, by the way, uh, from Sparebank, but it was reported uh, in FT in some level of depth that it would take decades for these projects to actually return any value to their shareholders. You know, a few decades in the case of Nord Stream 2, and I, I think I remember 47 years in the case of TurkStream. Are we really to believe these are actual commercial projects? No. And, and you say, well, why are there Western companies involved in this at all? Of course, you have Wintershall and, and Uniper in Germany, OMV in Austria, NG in France, and Royal Dutch Shell in the Netherlands. Well, if you go back to 2015, just at the you know the very first days of this, I remember the Nord Stream 2 contract announcement from these companies being signed. And then within a few weeks, there were also headlines coming out that all of a sudden OMV has, you know, has reached an agreement for future asset development upstream in the Russian Federation, the Amal Peninsula. I think that Wintershall had a similar announcement, uh, Shell and the Sakhalin, et cetera. So yeah, maybe that these projects are commercial to these Western partners, but in my view, the commerciality doesn't necessarily have to stem based on that spare bank report directly from the project's operation, but rather what other enticements have these companies gotten in terms of their deeper relationships with Russian state-owned enterprises? And that's, I think, the other side of the coin of, of looking at this. That's why I think that, that stopping Nord Stream 2 and then talking about a transatlantic response to its future in terms of trying to get a behavioral change by the Kremlin is potentially one of the most impactful things we can do. Because as you said, you know, the the first cursory sanctions that we saw both the US and the EU make is a good positive symbolic step in response to Navalny. But it's not, as as you said as well, what Navalny's organization was calling for, for example, on on oligarchs. So that's something that can be considered as a ramp up in the future, per se. But stopping Nord Stream 2 also is is in that that realm, that that orbit of actions that I think needs to be considered in order to at least least give it a chance, right? So maybe it won't work. You know, the Russians say, fine, we don't care if Nord Stream 2 is not finished. It's going to sit there in sanctions and just kind of rot in the Baltic seabed. And we're never going to leave Donbass. We're never going to stop corrupting, you know, you know, co-opting officials to work for our state-owned enterprises. And we're never going to release Navalny. But at least we tried. And at least we tried United. And I think that the Biden administration can think big in this case, because I think these are laudable goals that the U.S. and European leaders, uh, including President Joe Biden, who well knows the challenges posed by creeping authoritarianism to transatlantic security, if left unaddressed, can, can do. So they have a real opportunity to, A, build the transatlantic national security consensus on this issue, build it out into a strategy for all of those other economic deals, emerging technologies, et cetera, from other authoritarian regimes that are trying to make investments, uh, some of which are actually commercial, some of which may be strategic for, in the case of Beijing, that's that's often the debate. And I think you can also revitalize the US-German relationship by taking all of the actions from climate to the reversal of the drawdown of troops, et cetera, you know, lack of trade war talk, and obviously just the lack of bellicose rhetoric from the president, which is completely unhelpful, to say the least, stopping Nord Stream 2 and then having an actual dialogue on it where it's not constantly this, if we don't do something in the next two weeks, then Ukraine is really going to suffer very quickly sort of scenario like we saw in December 2019. Then we can stop and take at our leisure in the transatlantic community a way to do this. And I think that can also build trust and be a key component of the U.S.-German relationship going forward. You might say, okay, well, stopping Nord Stream 2 will be upsetting to to them no matter what. But there's a lot of folks in Germany and the CDU and the Green Party in particular that don't like this project and have also called for it to be stopped. And and again, the European Parliament has on three occasions on an overwhelming majority called for this project not just to be opposed, but to be stopped, right? So the will of 
the European Parliament is to stop this. The will of most, you know, the, the concerns of most countries in Europe is to, to stop this. And um, there's even political opposition across the board in Germany, not to mention uh, that also none other than the most famous climate activist, uh, Greta Thunberg, is opposed to this as well. She tweeted earlier this year after the Navalny poisoning and, uh, and the Navalny arrest. So in the year 2021, Europe chooses to meet its energy demands by building a pipeline to transport more fossil fuels from the ones responsible for this, and that this being Navalny's arrest and uh, jailing. She said, shameful on so many levels, hashtag free Navalny. So the, the climate community should you know, understand this as well, because this is a climate issue, massive hydrocarbon project that runs counter to the transatlantic community's climate goals, which, which need to be addressed desperately. And it's also, it has these human rights elements to it as well. And so I think it's a major step that can be taken. I don't know if it's a, you know, a panacea or something like that, you know, something that's going to solve everything, but it's certainly something, you know, we should give it the old college try from a diplomatic point of view on seeing if we can get a behavioral change before this thing would ever come online. Because if we don't, then that leverage is gone forever. And, and I think that the Biden administration really can think creatively here on how to do this. And again, you mentioned Wendy Sherman, the deputy secretary designate of the State Department. She said yesterday that she would do everything that she can to stop Nord Stream 2, making sure it's not completed in her congressional testimony uh, at her confirmation hearing. Tony Blinken, the now Secretary of State, has said the same thing in his confirmation hearing, that he would do everything in his power to uh, make sure that project is not completed, doesn't come to completion. And of course, Jen Psaki has said it from the White House, that, that President Biden continues to view this project as a bad deal for Europe, hearkening back to his 2016 remarks in Stockholm when he first said this, as has Ned Price, the spokesperson of the State Department. So the rhetorical policy is there. I think that the political capital that the Biden administration has, that I said, again, the Trump administration never had on this, this uh, issue because of all the other uh, areas that Trump uh, was just egregious on in the transatlantic community from a rhetorical point of view, et cetera. They have that now, and, and they should be looking at this not as something that needs to immediately come to some sort of agreement on the you know kind of uh, lowest common denominator. Uh, well, we'll just kind of uh, agree with the Germans that if there's just an extended contract on paper and a shutoff mechanism, that even if it lacks credibility, at least there's something we did. I think that's insufficient. And I think that there's right, especially seven years after Crimea and six years after Nord Stream 2 has been announced with all of these cutoffs of Ukraine in the interceding period, there really is a credible argument to be made that any contract that you sign or agreement you sign with the Kremlin under those conditions without actual enforcement behind it is not worth the paper it's written on. And Ukrainians often point back to the Budapest Memorandum for this reason. I think they're right. I think that there's a lot of voices in the transatlantic community that have concerns. I think that we can all come together on this once the project is stopped to address these. But if this just kind of keeps barreling forward, it's going to be very difficult to get that sort of positive diplomatic outcome that I think is potential to be out there. Again, not guaranteed, but I think it's something that the U.S. and Europe need to try to get, to get. I mean, I will say, and before we leave it there, that, you know, optically, at least, you have an administration that has called out the Kremlin for a, an act of state terrorism against the leader of the opposition. According to reporting by diplomatic correspondents, more sanctions are coming for not just the solar winds hack, which really was more of an American screw up than it was uh, an act of Russian aggression. I mean, that was a case of just pure espionage. But... Uh, more important than that, the GRU Taliban bounties 
accusation, which was very controversial because, well, it was kind of misinterpreted and misreported because there's this ongoing dispute between the CIA and the Pentagon about the import of the intelligence, uh, not the facts themselves. But anyway, if there are sanctions passed by the Biden administration against Russia for its Russian military intelligence agencies attempt to suborn Taliban extremists and other Islamist jihadist groups in Afghanistan to murder American and British soldiers, that's not going to play so well internationally. And that's going to make it a lot harder, at least from a moral hazard point of view, I suppose, for Germany and whatever other kind of wobbly European countries to say, ah, oh, well, you know, what's wrong with just doing business as usual with the Kremlin? Uh, you know, that, that this is the way you, you make peace. I mean, here you have an act of, I mean, worse than proxy warfare. I mean, essentially, you know, attempted murder against two NATO member states in a, a theater of war. And that will become or at least it'll be treated as kind of established fact because sanctions, as you know, having worked in the State Department, they, they don't just get wished up. There has to be some, some credible basis for passing these financial punitive measures. So perhaps, I mean, it, I guess it, it pays to be cautiously optimistic. Is that the, uh, the, the diplomatic euphemism here? <laughs> but anyway, Ben, it, it was great to have you on. Come back when and if Nord Stream 2 gets turned on or inshallah, as President Biden might say, it does not. And we can talk about the uh, geopolitical consequences from either contingency. But anyway, thanks for for joining us. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. And my guest this week was Ben Schmidt, a Nord Stream 2 energy security specialist. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to be on. Pleasure. 